Welcome to Joiners, the podcast with Tim and Danny, where each week we explore the world of hospitality by chatting with its most colorful characters. What's going on, Tim? Danny. Thank you for the breakfast treat this morning. You're welcome. It was Um, the most excellent. Yeah, I won't say where it was from, but I will note that it was not from where I wanted it to be from. Mm. Because hours. Because spinning J doesn't open till nine. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I wanted to bring. Um, But yeah, so... You know, Tim and I had a very funny, uh, a funny interaction with a stranger a few weeks back, and we forgot to mention it. So felt that now would be the appropriate time. Sure. So Tim has been talking up Nuno Kebab, and so we decided to go there for lunch one day after recording. And you know, we placed the order, and there aren't many open seats. Yeah, this place is humming at lunchtime because they have a killer lunch special. They do, and uh, so this. This guy maybe spots me looking around for a place to sit and he's at a four top and he's like, just, yeah, just come sit over here. He's kind of an interesting character. Yeah. He was solo. Start. He was solo. Important. Yeah. Solo diner. He invites us to come share his table and Tim and I are like, uh, we're like, we're like, okay, yeah, makes sense. What else are we going to do? Yeah. There's nowhere else to sit. And yeah, otherwise we're eating in the parking lot. That's right. So we sit down. And I think this guy like kind of reads our apprehension. He's like, don't worry about it, guys. Like, I'm doing work. He's got like his AirPods in or whatever, earbuds in. And he's I'm like, not I'm, even here. Yeah, I'm, I pretend I'm not even here. Tim and I get one sentence into conversation. This guy immediately chimes in to our conversation and inserts himself. Yes. <laughs> and it was so funny because he's like, I couldn't help it over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he immediately promises to keep to himself and then seconds after that promise breaks it yeah i do feel that um it's maybe a testament to the hospitality industry in chicago because we were talking about the podcast we were talking about food and chefs and stuff and so the guy like immediately chimed in on that topic yeah so but um suffice to say he's also trying to sell us <laughs> your like yeah. lisa space for a restaurant <laughs> yeah, concept really was. which is kind of a conflict of interest <laughs> yeah but so to danny's credit Honestly, I'm so non-confrontational. I would have sat there the entire time and talked to this guy about his uh, multiple properties that he's trying to lease us and feigned <laughs> interest, even though I'm not a restaurateur. Uh, but to Danny's credit, the first table that cleared, Danny goes, well, we're going to head over there. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> I could not do it. And I uh, I was relieved. It was brutal. Yeah. <laughs> Good for that guy. He was shooting his shot. And the other reason that... We're also uh, happy to announce that Danny's now opening a new bar in one of his spaces. <laughs> yeah, this random guy's spaces. Um, but yeah, it actually came oh, up... We, dude, why didn't we think of this? We should have pitched him on the high life and pickled yeah, egg exactly. idea. exactly. We could have really tested his metal. <sighs> Next um, time. But yeah, it came up because uh, this week's guest, Zach Angle, talks about Nuno Kebab, which is pretty cool. That's right. He is no stranger to the kebab. He isn't. And, and uh, actually, I learned about Nuno Kebab from our apron factory. We make our aprons up in Roscoe Village, and it's not far from there. It's like Kedzie and what do you think of Cross Street is there? It's like, like Kedzie and the train ish. Yeah, it's just yeah, just past the train tracks. And um, every time I pick up aprons around lunchtime, uh, they're eating Nuno Kebab, and they always are like, "Oh, come eat with us." And so I, I usually tell them like, "Where is this place?" And they call it Noon Kebab. Hmm. Which I think sounds they better. They dropped the O. Yeah, but that's not the name. It's Nuno Kebab. <laughs> Nuno Kebab. Which I realized when I tried to Google it. But uh, now it's like a thing. Every time I go, they're like, oh, you got to come back for Nuno Kebab. Is that a play on like O'Clock? But you would never say Noon O'Clock. No, you would not say that. So that's kind of strange. I personally would never even consider <laughs> saying anything close to that. It's very messed up. 
Um, but yeah, so we've got Zach Angle on this week's episode. Big we, chef. Yeah. yeah. Big chef. Michelin starred chef. He's James got it Beard all. James Beard award he's, winning he's chef. He's extremely decorated. Yeah. James Beard award. He won a James Beard award for his work with Shia in New Orleans. He was also a Beard uh, rising star, uh, I think, when he was in New Orleans still. Uh, Galit is a Michelin starred restaurant in Lincoln Park now where you can get wonderful Middle Eastern food and very, very good wines. Yeah. He kind of came to Chicago on a whim. Yeah. I mean, it really worked out. Yeah, he yeah he did, and almost had like a career change in yeah. the middle of there. So thank random. God he didn't. Yep. Um, but yeah, uh, it was interesting talking with him. He uh, he's he was kind of like always the young gun. He um, had a lot of experience early on, even back in college. He was working. Um, we, we get to learn about uh, working in like a Jewish kitchen, which is yep. has a lot of rules <laughs> that he yeah. had to follow. Son of a rabbi, so he, he was aware of these rules, but I. I you know, wasn't really practicing. And you know what? I'm getting to it. Far <laughs> yeah. Down the road. yeah, we're lucky to have him here in <laughs> Chicago. Without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Zach Engel. This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Host Ready to Drink Premium Bottled Cocktails. Choose from Old Fashioned, Martini, and coming soon, a Manhattan. For more information, go to Host. That's H-O-S-T-E, cocktails.com. Connect with quality. Zach, I Ish. saw you last week in your restaurant. That's true, you did. Yep. I, th- I thought I'd find out. you there. I'm generally there. <laughs> <laughs> I had a wonderful meal. I was dining with my business partner, Jim, John Mannion, and Brian Gentile from Moat Hennessy. Wow. And we were, it was a debriefing on the Wanduaga event. We were, uh, started, we were talking about what went well this year, what we want to change, and starting to plan next year. Yeah, you, and then I just, I just um, came down hard on you guys. <laughs> well, you Everything were a chef. that you did wrong. I, I am interested in uh, in what we did wrong, um, other than the um, temperature being above 100 degrees. Yeah, but you you only have some control over that. Yeah, yeah. When the sun goes <laughs> down, it's off my plate. Yeah. What were the highlights of the Galit meal? Oh, my God. Um, I mean, the food, I couldn't pick a favorite dish because everything was outstanding. I'm not saying that because you're sitting here. Um, the wine pairing sure, was sure. also, I'm not a big wine guy. The, the wines were all delicious. And we got to taste your daughter's namesake wine, which was that is true. a highlight as well. Wait, what's the story there? So um, when I was 22, I went to Israel to work at a fine dining restaurant for a summer. Just like three-month visa, bought a ticket, rented an apartment. And uh, my then-girlfriend, now wife, uh, we'd only been dating for a couple of months, and I was like, hey, I'm going to Israel if you want to come. And she was like, I don't know. That seems kind of crazy. And um, so when I was done with my stage at Katit, which is a restaurant in Tel Aviv that's now closed, she met me there. Um, and the first thing we did was we took a bus from Tel Aviv to Hadera, and a soft marguerite of marguerite wine picked us up, brought us to the winery, which was like a garage with 32 barrels. And we did a full barrel tasting with him and like his family. And like they cooked us breakfast and the whole thing. And, and uh, for our entire relationship, marguerite wine has been sort of the centerpiece, like a lot of celebrations, birthdays, anniversaries. It was the wine we had at our wedding like that we drank for Kiddush under the chuppah and it's a whole big thing. So when we knew we were having a girl, it was a pretty obvious choice to name her Marguerite. 
It's a great cool. name and yeah. a thoughtful story. That's very nice. Yeah, yeah. I like romance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like romance? <laughs> I also have to give a shout out to the cocktail menu. Um, I didn't know Scott was working with you guys, which has yeah, been Scott's like multiple Strummer. years. Yeah, um, he's awesome. Yeah, for I don't. I guess it'll be three years pretty soon. Yeah. Um, we're very fortunate to have him, and it's been great because for the first year, I was sort of the director of the wine program, and we had. Um, uh, Olivia Duncan, who worked with Andre at Nico, she was the bar director. And then um, this uh, other person, Christine Muller, was handling wine. And now to be able to, like, take a step back and have – we've done all this legwork to bring all these wines to Chicago through our various relationships and, and, like, just buying everything that was available so the distributors would continue to bring it in. And Scott takes over, and I don't really have to – I don't have to micromanage that program mm-hmm. anymore. He just does it and follows through and makes the connections. Is there a structure to it? Like you want to have X amount of reds? What you know? When we when we first opened, the idea was to kind of divvy it up by three regions, really. And the one that we wanted to focus on with is the Middle East, and we snuck some stuff in there that I would not necessarily call it Middle Eastern, just to fill out. Yeah, a good portion list. of the menu, but in 2019, I was like meeting with wine reps and telling them that I was like looking for the stuff, and they thought I was nuts. <laughs> they were like, just "What? No, just no demand?" Yeah, they were like, "What? What is the point of you? Like, no one wants this." And I was like, "No, no, no they're gonna want it." Because um, I'd been trying this stuff for a decade and like knew what I was looking for. They had more than when I lived in New Orleans. There's definitely more available. And then the other part was Sonoma, because I lived for a couple of years in Sonoma and worked in a restaurant in Healdsburg. And on days off, I would go to like every winery I could and do tastings. And they, a uh, really cool thing about Sonoma, because they're like, you know, most of the time it's like farmers that make wine. They would let you into the winery if you were worked in restaurants in the area and you didn't have to pay like a tasting fee, like some, you know, pleated pants tourist you know (laughs) and then kind of everywhere else because we also were tasting a lot of stuff from the reps that was like interesting and fit in with our with our style which was low intervention as much like biodynamic organic certified demeanor stuff just because i like the approach of letting ingredients speak for themselves it, without doing too much to them, it aligns a lot with like how I approach food. Yeah. Um, and having some like level of integrity environmentally for what you're doing. So um, then within that, it was like whites, oranges, rosés, and then reds. We have a five to six bottle sparkling selection. And then our wines by the glass is always like a pretty good mix. There's things that we always have, um, whether or not from the same vintner, sometimes from a different label, but like we always have a Gruner because I think Gruner and hummus is like a bangerang combo. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and over the years, that Sonoma section, which was initially very large, has grown smaller and smaller as the Middle Eastern section has gotten bigger. We started with like two... 180 bottle wine fridges in like an enclave 
And in 2021, we turned that into like a properly insulated wine room um, that like holds temperature and like has white wine coolers inside of it. And we store everything appropriately. So now we're kind of living the vision that I had for it when, in 2019, like when we were pinching pennies trying to yeah, open. Yeah, for sure. And we're able to get so much stuff now that people come to us with the wine. Yeah. And um, I think that we, the wine program being driven by like a chef or like has meant that that those wines are more aligned with the food i think and they're very thoughtful about having a balanced list that appeases a lot of different groups like we can get the lincoln park moms and they can get their buttery chardonnay but it's coming from the negev desert Mm. and so we get to like point people in a direction that they're comfortable with and move them towards the things that we want them to to try and then we also have stuff that's just like wild um, that you can't find anywhere else. Like native grapes in the Middle East turned into pet gnats, sold in one liter bottles. Like, <laughs> you know, from our from our guy Eddie and Marcel in, in Lebanon. Um, and I, we were like doing this four course menu that you had the other night. And mm-hmm. we've been doing that for a few years now. And up until like a year ago, we were having all these people that were like wanting us to pair things constantly, yeah. uh, just like the Michelin star and everything like that kind of, those kind of folks come in hoping for that experience. And I'm just like, I'm like, we're not a wine pairings restaurant. <laughs> you have multiple dishes from each course on the table at once. And so we decided to kind of create this like journey through the Middle East and get to try different purveyors from different countries constantly in rotation. We have a few like rules that we follow. We don't like to double down on a country. We don't like to do like two reds if we can help it. And that's been like kind of our focus and we're constantly switching things in. It's made our lives easier because we're able to put stuff on the list that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily try, like the Marguerite. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get to taste it without committing to a $180 bottle of wine. Right. And so it's really cool to give people that experience because a lot of people come in, they're like, Middle Eastern wine. I don't know if it's very good. <laughs> you isn't it hot there? And you're like, yeah, it's, it's hot. But like, you know, they have refrigeration. Uh, <laughs> like, things are shipped appropriately. So. Yeah. so as that selection has grown for you, do you see that catching on at other restaurants or has it turned into a thing where it's like you are the lone destination for, for some Middle Eastern wine? Yeah. I mean, I, I I can't 100% speak for every other restaurant in the country, especially ones that do our oh, food. Oh, really? But I thought you I, might be able to. I, uh, I can say that we have um, one of the most extensive lists of Middle Eastern wine in the country. Um, and we we only have, like, the hits. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not, like, your grandfather's crusty kosher big bomber red mm-hmm. on our list like these are all from winemakers that we have grown to know pretty well and understand their style and they're exemplifying like great winemaking practice and mm-hmm. and so that's i can say that for sure like i stand behind all the bottles 
in the in our Middle Eastern section. Yeah, they made it to the menu. They've yeah, we're not we're not just like throwing stuff on because like yeah. some sales rep is like, I'll give you a Jägermeister towel. <laughs> you, uh, How many Jägermeister? Yeah, every time I shower at Danny's yeah. house, he's yeah. handing me a Jägermeister <laughs> towel. Yeah. Sims just showering there nonstop. <laughs> yeah, Scott Floss only under twice a, a gin day. bar yeah. just sells Jäger. <laughs> Just for the towels. So, um, all right. So how did you get into all of this, into the food world? How did you start cooking? Um, so I kind of was, was like kind of fending for myself at home a lot. My dad is a rabbi. And so Where's working uh, Orlando, Florida. Nice. Prior to that, Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> I'm a southerner. Yeah. yeah. Know that. Sure. Um, so my dad worked a lot and he was gone on Fridays and Saturday nights and like that kind of thing. So my mom cooking was a chore. She didn't enjoy it. She put food on the table, but like, wasn't that into it. And then as I got older, it was kind of like, she did it less, you know? Uh, and so I would like start to cook things on my own. And then I got to college, uh, went to Tulane in New Orleans. And exploring that city and the acts, the accessibility of an affordability of food to a college student is incredible there. Do you remember some of those first dishes that blew your mind? Um, I mean, I remember like, I remember like going to um, like a gas station for fried chicken and being like, this is literally the best fried chicken, <laughs> which is like every gas station in, in New Orleans and Louisiana sells like something food related and it's all great. Boudin, fried chicken, red beans and rice. Um, like my first like po' boys, uh, like just all that stuff that's like very cheap and like everyday food there. It's all like full of history and soul and flavor and they're very proud of their culture there. And I really fell in love with that element of New Orleans and would uh, spend a lot of my time trying to find these places that people would talk about, which I think is different than a lot of kids at Tulane's experiences. Like they kind of sometimes stay within that bubble. Yeah, you know? insulated. Insulated for sure. What, um, were, what were you studying at Tulane? So I was undecided for a while, and then I decided to go and – like I was like, oh, be a chef, um, uh, restaurants. So I was doing business, mm -hmm. but it's sort of like a degree so that my parents weren't like totally disappointed in me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I was always really good academically. And then I just kind of like got burnt out after high school and was at Tulane. And that just kind of seemed like the thing that I wanted to do. And I fortunately come from like, a middle-class family and like I wasn't gonna I didn't like need to go and work in finance or be a lawyer or a doctor just to like get my get myself beyond where my parents were you know yeah so um I applied for a job at a at the Hillel at Tulane and I started working there cooking dinner like two nights a week for like Jewish students in a kosher kitchen and I took over that job from a friend of mine who was, like, going abroad, like, doing study abroad. And it was small. And then by the time I was, a, like, a junior, um, after three years, it had become, like, I was cooking for, like, 150 people. Like your food had caught. Yeah. Had like, caught people on. were, like, mm. Hillel, free dinner is the place to go. 
Um, Can you maybe tell the listeners what cooking in a kosher kitchen means? So uh, there's two sets of everything, two refrigerators, two sets of cookware, two sets of plates, glassware. There's two sinks for dishes. If you have a dishwasher, usually there's two. And you separate milk and meat. There's a bunch of other rules in there that, like, seem silly in a lot of ways. Like, I had to crack every egg into an individual bowl to make sure that there was no, like, little spot of blood. Because that would mean that the egg had become, like, meat. Otherwise, eggs are considered non-meat or dairy. Hmm. And so, like, that's, like, a thing a lot of people don't know. But, like, if if I'm making brownies, I had to crack like 180 eggs individually and check them before oh. they went into like the big bowl. What what percent had blood, would you say? Yeah, like 10%. Oh, wow. It's pretty significant. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's all sorts of rules about butchering meat, um, being blessed. There's like symbols on boxes that indicate uh, they're kosher certified. So I already – I knew a lot of that stuff like growing up. Like we didn't keep kosher in my house, but I understood the rules. So I was a good candidate for the job. Your dad didn't keep kosher as a rabbi? No. I mean, we lived in the South, common? right? So well, my, we're reform, so Same, we're yeah. like, uh, you know, guitar playing. <laughs> the not dippies. serious. Yeah, yeah the not serious. Um, I, did, I guess I never considered whether, yeah, I guess I just assumed that all rabbis kept kosher. I, so we had Perhaps rules in the house. Like we didn't bring pork in the house. We yep. didn't bring shellfish in the house. Uh, we typically didn't eat cheeseburgers. So quasi-kosher. Yeah. And like, um, but like you live in the South, right? Especially in Jackson. It's pretty hard to go to a restaurant and like yeah. not eat Yeah, places. it wasn't practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So there's no kosher restaurants in mm-hmm. Orlando or Jackson, Mississippi. So you don't have like a lot of options, right? Yeah. Fair and everyone right. needs to live their lives. Right. Um, so... I did that, and then um, a member of the board of Hillel was like, oh, I know this guy is opening a restaurant, um, Italian food, and I'll put in a good word for you because you said this is what you want to do. And that um, that is when I got an interview with Alon Shia. And so I worked for him as a pastry assistant at Domenica in 2009 when it opened. But it got delayed for several months, just construction delays. And I had not taken another job for the summer because I was told it was going to open like early May. And then my friend had been working for this woman as like a photography assistant who was a cookbook author. And he was going out of town for the summer, like going back home. And he just kind of like take over my job for me. I think this is a good fit for you. And she is woman, Kit Wool, who is like still like a mom to me in new orleans and she taught me how to do cookbook photography recipe development i was like her tester i was her photography assistant like setting up lighting and i also would um cook through all the recipes and give her feedback as someone who was like experienced but didn't really wasn't a professional chef and her nephew This guy, Rob Barker, had moved back to New Orleans to kind of like take a break from he had been running a big hotel in Utah. He was the executive sous chef at Emeralds in the early 90s 
So mm. like right when Emerald was like Whoa. popping off. Yeah. Bam. Um, and then <laughs> bam. Uh, bam indeed. <laughs> and then he was at uh, Spago looking yep. for Wolfgang. L.A. Wow. As the like executive Sue when like, you know, Spago was popping off. Yeah. So he had like this like very illustrious career. Um, not like a celebrity chef, but like the chef behind a chef. And I got um, in between all of my like regular duties, including like cleaning the pool mm-hmm. and feeding the cats. Uh, I got like life lessons on how to operate in a restaurant without ever having walked in the door of one. Hmm. And so by the time Domenica opened and I was in there, I was like really prepared to handle what was going to happen in, in the in the kitchen. Were you still doing pastry at that time? So, yeah, I mean, that's what I started off as. Okay. It's like I was a pastry assistant. Like, was there a reason dose. why you were on pastry versus? It's a really good place to start um, okay. beginner cooks. Um, there's like less of a workload. It, it, revol- it requires like a lot less knife work. It's very much following a recipe and doing it exactly the way it's supposed to be done. Um, and it was like a lot of chefs would tell you this is where they started is uh, with a pastry background in some way. Um, and it was very beneficial to me. I eventually moved to like helping with bread baking. And then I was making pasta full time. Uh, they, you know, sold a lot of pasta. So I was making all the doughs and using the machine and like making inuloti and Alon would like run pasta specials and like we would make the pasta together. Uh, I would do like some salumi prep. And so in the seven months or whatever that I was there, when I was like 21 years old, um, I was like working 16 hours a day because I would like um, not tell anyone and like work off the clock and like stay for dinner. I'd work, I'd be there at, like at like 6 a.m., make pastas till 2. The PM line cooks would come in and I'd stay and work service with them and like no one said anything and I would just like plate pastas and like work the fryer and like that's how I learned how to do a lot in a short period of time. Yeah. So you just loved it. You loved being there. Oh yeah, and like and like you it's New Orleans, right? Bars don't close till like never. <laughs> so like we would get off work too and we would like shoot the shit and hang on the bar across the street and like all the older cooks would like just buy me drinks because they're like you did great tonight and it was like a fun like team element to it that yeah, i really loved and so that's kind of like where i started i fell in love with it and then i um uh finished my degree at Tulane, and so like that my time at dominica ended mm-hmm so in those seven months, was there any overlap when you were at Tulane and Domenica? Yeah, I had like a full, I had a full work schedule, um, plus the additional time on like the weekends. I didn't have class on Fridays my senior year, so I did class. <clears throat> I did Monday night class, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then I would work from Friday at six a.m. <laughs> pretty much until Monday, like at two p.m. Wow, like. You know, besides like sleeping, or, like yeah. that's an insane. <laughs> it is yeah. work. Well, ethic you're young, for a young man. Kid. No, like you got the energy. Danny, did you have a job in college? Um, I did. I worked in a tech lab. Really? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I was a writing tutor and I strung tennis rackets. That was <laughs> the extent of it. And it was not demanding. It was like a few hours a week. Yeah, same. I mean, my it wasn't in no way like Zach's full time yeah. schedule. Especially I was, putting up I mean, I'm, I'm also days. like, I'm a little bit of a, like a sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> There's our poll quote. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit of a sociopath. Um, Sorry. Right, so you graduate. What's the first So I move? graduate. Um, before Dominic had opened, I had uh, reached out to Mike Salmanoff at Zahav in Philadelphia. And I was like, um, I actually grew up with his cousin in Orlando. He's like my best friend growing up. Mm. Hmm. So I knew Michael was, like, doing Israeli food. It it was only, like, less than a year old at that point. And I was like, I would love to come up to Philadelphia. Um, I have a place to stay, like, and just work for the weekend and, like, check out Zahav because I'm trying to, like, get into restaurants. So I did my stage there for a weekend, stayed at a friend of mine's house who's from, like, just outside of the city. And when I was about to graduate, I just shot him an email and I was like, hey, I'm interested in like working in restaurants and I'd love to come and work at Zahav if you're interested. I've been at Dominica doing X, Y, Z. And he was just like, when can you be here? <laughs> so I graduated on like May 15th and was in Philly on May 20th. Wow. I started like the day I got there. Oh, in what, in what yeah. position? I just one of the line cooks. Like uh-huh. the, fir- the first night, actually, they... They, uh, they're like the grill cook called out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so they have like, they had like, back then it was this, uh, like four foot by three foot, like barbecue bin on wheels that they had like rigged up with bars. So it fit like full 600 hotel pans in it and just filled with charcoal. And I was like cooking like lamb kebab, chicken, fish, like all this stuff over charcoal grill. And, like, not a lot of experience doing that beforehand. But, like, uh-huh. being thrown in the wolves was, like, pretty fun. Like, that was a fun night. Yeah. I was like, this is it. Yeah. Like, this is where I should be be at for a little That's while. That's cool. And that was when there were just two places in the Solomonov. Like, it was Marigold and uh, Zahav, right? Well, Marigold was done. They left and oh, just opened Zahav. They, they, had, they had owned it for a period of time afterwards. But I think at that point, they had gotten out of it and sold it to somebody and the chef who worked at marigold while they were opening sahav they had opened a barbecue restaurant with her and then they had a mexican restaurant as well that they had bought sochi yeah and so that was and sochi was like a block away yeah and so those were the three restaurants that when i was there cool and then you were there obviously for a while because you ended up running other stuff yeah, so I went to – after I got back from Israel, Mike put me in charge of Federal Donuts. So I was, like, 24. Yeah. And I was, like, running a 400-square-foot donut and fried chicken restaurant. I was working graveyard hours, eating a lot of fried food. <laughs> uh, they kind of, like, let me have – they had their recipes. Can you eat donuts to this day? I will try a donut. I do not enjoy donuts. Did you then? Well, yeah, because they were they're really good donuts. Like but they I mean, had worked before on them you started for, that job, you enjoyed donuts, and then after I wouldn't say I like enjoyed donuts. Like if they were there, I'd eat. Them. I mean, look at me. So I'm not. Gonna, I didn't say no to donuts. <laughs> oh, me? Are you pro donut, Danny? I know. I'm pro donut. I know a lot of Midwesterners that are like diehard love donuts. Yeah. And like my mother-in-law is from Indiana, and she's like that. And like, I was never 
like yeah. big on donuts. Sufganiyot. Oh yeah. For yeah. Hanukkah, sure. Mm, yeah. But so all right, so you run Federal Donuts. Yeah, I open up the first two locations with them in the commissary, and then uh, were there more sales of chicken or donuts? It was like we could make us probably more do- definitely more donuts because we also sold donuts while we were selling chicken. But like we had two region coolers and like a metro rack and like a table, two fryers and a donut robot. And so we were like at capacity mm-hmm. every day and we just sold out every day. Donut yeah. robot. Yeah. What's the secret to, I'm going to ask for both, but what's the secret to a great donut? Um, so they were cake donuts, yep. which I really like. Um, and it's, no different than making a cake batter. If you can make a really good cake batter, you have the right amount of egg and like some gluten activity, and then the rise is right. But a lot of it is like temperature um, and like seasoning. Like salt is so important, even in pastry. And yeah, like there was a good out. amount mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of salt in the dough. Okay. So a good amount of salt. And you in the cook dough. in. Um, you gotta cook in like the partially solid cooking oil, hmm. like the stuff that when it's cold oh. is like white and milky. Okay, what they call it? Yeah, huh? We don't. I don't use it at, at Galit. What, te- use, it's what temperature partial. are you frying at? This is like ten years ago, man. Come on, man. <laughs> Do you want me to look at my recipe? I was just looking at a donut. I was looking at Molly Baz. I was looking at Molly Baz's <laughs> book last night at some donut holes and specified three seventy five. This those those are little differences. They make it. Yeah, know. I well, think a I think a donut hole at three seventy five makes sense because you want to you want it to go quick. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you're not trying to cook too much. Yeah, but it, like if you have a bigger item and you're cooking at a lower temperature, it'll be a more even cook. All right, so we're going with three seventy five. All right, I was it? I just said three fifty, but oh, I don't three, know. oh, sorry, sorry, three fifty. Yeah. That's what what's I what's easier to <laughs> screw up, a fried chicken or a donut? Oh, donuts, because we were like, it'd be you know, it'd be like winter time, yeah, and like the dough wouldn't like proof enough because like the heat wasn't mm. working well in the, the building, temp. and then it would just it would just make all the donuts raw on the inside. Ugh, that's the worst classic but i mean couldn't you have like raw i mean fried chicken that's not fully cooked through or that's so uh, you know you do a twice cooked fried chicken it's pretty got it and you're timing it and all the pieces are uniform. so they're par cooked and then fried every time yeah yeah it's korean fried chicken Mm. so when you have yeah when you have a process for frying chicken it's easy but when i do it at home i'm always like is this still raw (laughs) oh i do that too well that's why i only do like um like thin breaded cutlets yeah i'm, not I'm pounding it with yeah. yep i'm the same way now and i don't trust my thermopen anymore that thing it's all over the place well if you have bone in too like you know depending on like how long your chicken's been tempering like the bone retains a lot of like temperature so if it's super cold all the meat around the bone is going to be oh. less cooked and then i guess on the other side of that after it's fried because like sometimes you can take it out at you want it at 165. You can take it out at 155. Maybe it's going to continue to cook. 160, maybe. Yeah, theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> um, explains all the yeah. E. coli. Uh, there's like an in my exact house. science. But... <laughs> okay, and then uh, last donut question: What is the <laughs> He's optimal? Like, I don't even fucking like donuts. Man. <laughs> no, but he knows, but he has the knowledge. What is the optimal window to eat a donut? So they do these donuts where they come right out of the fryer and go into these, like, seasoned sugars. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a pretty magical thing to get like a hot donut yeah. with the sugar like melting on the fat. I'd say like you don't want to do it when it comes out because like you want the part of using that like partially solid cooking fat. Is it partially is that, hydrogenated? What yeah, is it like called? whatever the like yeah something like that. Okay. So it's it's um. It's like sh- liquid shortening or something. Oh, they I get you. It. Okay. So, um, is that when it cools down, it's not greasy. The fat I getcha. stays in there. So, if you wait like 30 seconds after they come out and then they're tossing the sugar, that's like they're still really nice and warm, but it's not greasy on your hands as yeah, much. Yeah, that's is it. Is it fry shortening? Is that what it's called? Liquid yeah. fry shortening. Yep. You know, I haven't thought about this in like. Eight years. <laughs> That's what we're going to spend the most time. Yeah. going to be on the new menu. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, a tasty, versatile spirit. Created in Chicago in 2012, the product was born out of a need for a bespoke iteration of the Old Tom style, which is the slightly sweeter predecessor to London Dry. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin carries classic notes of orange peel, juniper, and coriander while balancing on a subtle floral edge thanks to the addition of osmanthus blossoms. Its elevated proof is suitable in cocktails or unadorned. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin. Complete your bar. All right, so you're there for a couple of years, and then are you keeping in touch with Alon this whole time? Not really. I mean, sorry, um, it's hard for me to not say Alon because everyone says Alon. Well, he pronounces it Alon. Okay. Because, but in I mean, like, you can read the book. I don't yeah, need yeah. to tell you why. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Buy the book. <laughs> I have the book. Do you have the book? But I knew I grew up with a kid who same spelling. That's how he pronounced. Because like, so that's it's like the hard, way to it's a mental it. block in my head. It's a it. it's a how Americanized do you want to get? Yeah. Fair enough. So you sound Alon. Got it. Right. Um, so French. are you keeping in touch with Alon throughout your time? Not really. Um, okay. uh, ironically, that first night that I worked there, uh, I was on the grill station and he came in to eat with his mom Whoa. because he is from the Philadelphia area huh. and he had like heard about the restaurant and wanted to come in. So I hadn't seen him in like a few months because I like left, finished my degree and moved up there. And so my first day... Weird so coincidence. Weird, yeah. He's there eating, meeting yeah. Michael for the first time. Hmm. And I'm grabbing skewers without towels and burning <laughs> my fingers <laughs> like a rookie. Um, but how do you get linked back up? So, well, um, I went to uh, California for a little while. And I worked at that restaurant in Sonoma. Um, and then uh, it got too expensive for my wife and I. And we were just like, we can't keep living here. So... We took all of our savings uh, and moved back to New Orleans because I was like, this is an easy, easier place to live. It's more affordable. I, it's a small market. I think I could probably make a little bit of a dent here. Yeah. Find a place to, to work and then try and work my way up somewhere. And I got back and um, he like saw, I did like a, do you remember Dinner Lab? It was like a pop-up organ- like company. Hmm. They did pop-up dinners all it over the country. It sounds vaguely familiar. They were in Chicago. So they were in New Orleans, and I did one in New Orleans when I got there. And he like, saw it on like my Facebook and then like reached out to me, seeing if I wanted to like come and work at Dominica again because um, I was like looking for a job still. I had been staging around at places and interviewing. Uh, so he knew I was there, and then I ended up working at a place called Gotro's, 
which Susan Manick is, uh, was the chef there. Uh, and she just won the Beard Award. And she – really wonderful work environment, team of people that, like, just can cook, like, yeah. really, really well. What does a like an aspiring chef? What are they looking for in a kitchen environment? Like you mentioned, a beard award. So obviously, there's like a certain level of respect or a level of quality that's kind of implied. But is there something that you're, you know, tuned into when you're staging in these kitchens where you're like, this would be a good fit. This I saw this. It's not going to be a good fit. Like you saw evidence of X. I think it depends on what you want. Okay. I think Chicago is a big enough city where you can get a lot of different experiences in kitchens here. And some people are more interested in getting certain things out of it than others. Um, like they may put up with some nonsense because they want to work for like someone of like a name stature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're building a resume. For me, I only worked with people, whether by design or not, uh, who had like, well, Mike won a James Beard Award when I was there. Um, so he hadn't won one yet. Um, but. He'd been nominated like four times before that. So I only worked for James Beard winners or Michelin star winners. And that is just sort of like who I chose to work for. I don't necessarily think that that, those accolades indicate like whether you should work for somebody. Yeah. They're pretty good idea, like gauges for someone who's cooking uh, interestingly for their peers or professional critics to gauge if there's some sort of creativity uh in some way or they have a voice in their cooking i think that is kind of what that indicates to me if if someone has a voice what are they trying to say Mm -hmm. like where are they coming from what are they focusing on how are they doing it um that's very important i think if you listed the well-known chefs of chicago of the last 30 years you could pretty clearly indicate like what someone is saying about their food um i also think that i looked for people that showed an interest in me and in mentoring me i also like pursued those mentoring relationships like very aggressively i was constantly like wanting to be in people's shadow to kind of learn from them but also observe as a third party, seeing what they were deciding, what their decisions were in the kitchen or in business and evaluating if those are the decisions that I would make or if I would do it differently. Um, because I think that like we learn from our predecessors. It's no different than like um, how you decide to parent your children based off of how you were parented, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the ways that we operate at Galit and how I operate as a chef are very indicative of things that I liked or didn't like while working for one of those people. And like how I run my business is also indicative of observing those decisions that they made over the years. When you decided to open Galit, did you seek specific advice or were you kind of learning along the way with the idea of opening your own place all along? Uh, That was like, yeah, like that was always the goal mm-hmm. is to open my own restaurant. Um, and then did you go back to some of these mentors and say, yeah, I'm ready to open my own place? I talked to a few of them. I, so, you know, I went, I went, when I went back to New Orleans, I, I, Alon approached me after I'd been with Sue for a few months and was like, I'm opening in and, uh, you know, quote, Israeli restaurant. And at the time, 
I don't think there were 10 people in the United States who like knew how to cook that kind of food in a professional kitchen or had seen it or even had like gone to those places to cook in a kind of restaurant. Um, and so there was like, I was the pick for that job. It was like mm-hmm. destined to yeah. take the chef position at Shia. And so um, he and I have a very uh, great relationship. It's still like a big brother mentorship. Like he's always my chef kind of thing. And so a lot of those questions went to him, mm-hmm. I would say, more than anybody else. Um especially because in the year prior to opening Galit or moving to Chicago to open a Galit, I had opened up his two restaurants in New Orleans and Denver as like a culinary director. So I had had practice spending all of his money mm-hmm. on opening yeah. restaurants mm-hmm. uh, and doing it like at a sort of bird's eye view corporate level. And so I had that happening inadvertently mm-hmm. or, I mean, he didn't know it. I knew it, but I was leaving. <laughs> Um, and then I would like ask him for a few things here and there, but like, I'm, uh, I'm the kind of person who's just going to like stubbornly do it on my own as much as I can until I hit a brick wall. Yeah. The one, the one in Denver is in a hotel. Yeah. It's like a hotel food hall thing. Yeah. What was that? Softa. Yeah. How did Softa's opening compare to the other? With, with just more red tape. was easier in a lot of ways because we had been in New Orleans. The pe- people knew us, mm-hmm. like, you know, customers and, and vendors and stuff. And we had relationships there. Um, and, like, hiring was a little bit easier, for sure. The restaurant itself was significantly smaller than Shia. And so that posed a lot of difficulties in doing, mm-hmm. like, lunch and dinner five days a week out of a kitchen that was half the size. Yeah. Um, Did you approach the uh, menu the same way? Was it just the hits from the other restaurant? It was definitely different. We had a CDC at Saba while we were opening up Safta, and she, like, led the menu a lot, and we pared a lot of things down to make it easier in some ways Mm -hmm. for the size of the kitchen. Um, And that restaurant's, like, transformed multiple times in the last six years. Uh, as like things have changed in the world, but it mm-hmm. very little resembles like what I opened yeah. with them, which was sort of just like Shia a mile away, kind of, you know, mm-hmm. like it was like the same kind of things. We had cataloged five years of recipes that we knew were successful, and then Kara got the reins to kind of like run the thing in the direction that she wanted to. And then Softa was, like, starting from the ground up. So it felt a lot like what I was going to do in Chicago, you know, connecting with vendors, establishing those relationships, hiring people, like, the right people for the right jobs, um, teaching people from scratch how to cook that food and being, like, organized in our recipes and our systems so that they could get executed in the way that we wanted to if we were not there. Because Alon doesn't... He is, you know, he lives in both places. He can't be everywhere all at once. What are some things that you're training people or at the time that was different about cooking Israeli food? Like you're saying, a lot of these people, you know, they didn't know how to cook this type of food. What are some like maybe are there general lessons or there techniques that they haven't been exposed to? Yeah, I think there's like there's definitely ingredients. Like okay. ingredients is a big thing. 
Like if all you've seen your whole life is red pepper chili flakes, you know, like an Italian restaurant or whatever, then you're not going to understand like that there's multiple types of chilies being used at different countries in the Middle East. Um, and so like that's an exposure, like what the flavor profile is, what the intensity is. Um, and then there's like things that people take for granted. They're very much a part of what you're cooking, like rice. Like people are always like rice, whatever, uh, <laughs> put in a rice cooker. And for us, or at least for me, it's like one of those things where it's like, it's a very humble thing to make, but to get it really, really perfect every time, there's like a way to do it where you're like consistent and these are the things that could go wrong. And this is how you do it exactly right. And like showing them like how important it is to follow those guidelines so they nail it and like every grain is separate and perfectly cooked and is seasoned properly and so like <clears throat> that's an approach that i think doesn't happen in like a lot of other styles of cooking where i think a lot of people focus a lot on proteins or sauces um or just like the the glory ingredients like mozzarella and san marzano tomatoes and that kind of thing so it is like a different mindset on how you approach that kind of food. Selfishly, I have to ask, what are some tips for perfect rice? Um, and it's going to depend on the type of rice. You have to get the ratio of water to rice. Depends on the type of rice. Yeah. Some rice you can rinse and get the extra starch <clears throat> off mm-hmm. or soak overnight. Um, some, we do not do that. Um, we cook in like a flat, shallow dish. Uh and have like the salt and the liquid and the rice like nice and even and it gets cooked in an oven so that when it um and like wrapped in foil super tightly so that the water comes to a steam is trapped inside so you don't have any water loss and then it um the grains aren't like weighted on top of each other Hmm. you cook in a pot they're on top yeah and all the ones on the bottom are going to get mushy so you have like a nice even cook um, and then resting rice is very important, like allowing it to have time to finish and absorb the excess steam mm-hmm. to kind of like coax it into the the final 90. Like you get it 90% cooked and then a resting period allows it to get that other 10 and yeah. really get perfectly fluffy. That's something I've just become aware of is the resting, like fluff and rust, rest your rice. Yeah. I actually, we don't even fluff till afterwards. Oh, okay. We fluff afterwards. We like let it fully rest and sealed. Yeah. Do I cook rice like that at home? Like overnight no. soak in, no, in the oven. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Like that's that's nuts. But like at a, in a restaurant setting yeah. where I want people to be like, that's really well made rice, whether or not they know it or not, or care. Mm-hmm. Like if they don't give a shit. Like <laughs> I'm just, you know, self flatulating, I guess, yeah. about the rice. <laughs> no, that's um, important. Yeah. But yeah. I want to make a distinction though, Danny, as well. So, like, Alan Shaya cooks Israeli food, and at Shaya we were cooking Israeli food. I'm not Israeli. I went there because it's a place in the Middle East where I am able to go, like, without being worried about, like, possible persecution or whatever as a Jew from America. Uh, I cook Middle Eastern food from the point of view that I have as well as the point of view of my business partner, Andres, whose maternal grandfather 
was Palestinian and born in Haifa and immigrated um, to New York pre-1948. And so, like, we do not call... I always have to make this very explicitly clear because, like, I do not hold any claim to Israeli food or anything like that. And um, my approach is always about being respectful of people's cultures and trying to emulate what they're doing and like celebrating it and bringing people together at a table. And so we can go down that route, but I just have to make the differentiation because good to know for sure. So when you opened Galit, um, were you living in Chicago at the time or did you move to Chicago to open? Uh, No, I moved to Chicago to open Galit. So how did you decide Chicago and how did you decide on Lincoln park? I like hot dogs. (laughs) Okay. Fair (laughs) enough. Um, So Anders, Anders and I knew each other. Um, through some people at Tulane because he mm-hmm. also went to Tulane. Um, and we reconnected. He was working for one-off uh, as a senior accountant in the corporate office as well as, like, moonlighting as a major D at Nico. Mm. Um, and so it was a perfect fit partnership for me where there was someone who could understand the operations of the business in a numbers-dollars perspective, but also... Um, like he was there when you came in, right? Yeah. Like there's not a lot of people with the front of the house presence that Andres has. Like he has a gift. Yeah. He's very polished, but in an approachable way. Like very warm, very approachable. Uh, I can't do that. I'm weird at the table. No, Um, I I like when you come to the table. It's nice. Yeah. Well, I like, we know each other, so I'm not trying to, (laughs) I'm not trying to impress you. Weird is great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I just, like, I'm not as uh, good at, like, talking to people and responding to them. Like, he's got a poker face. He always makes people feel Yeah, he's polished. Great. He's, yeah, I feel like polished, though, is, like, makes him seem like he wears, Impersonal, like a, yeah. Like, or, a, like yeah, a, a little Well, also, he, he has on a sport coat and a dress shirt. You've got <laughs> yeah, a hat. Yeah, he's wearing, like, Air apron. Force Ones, too, yeah. and jeans. So. Yeah, polished Air Force he's got Ones. His, like, he's got his, like, style. Uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> he likes to say when he has the pocket square, it adds $10 to the check average, <laughs> which I appreciate for sure. Um, Danny's Googling. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I'm like Zach. I mean, I, it's just, yeah, it's funny when you're behind the bar and stuff, you're, you know, you're hosting people and I'm pretty good at hospitality, but I feel like when I come out or I'm like at a table, you're like, all right, so uh, how's everything good? You know, it's like just such a, you know, some people are very good at just facilitating that, yeah, like, like that flow. Do you guys feel? And so I feel you, super uncomfortable when I'm just like dropping in on someone's meal. Yeah, I don't know if they want me to be there. Some maybe I'll overstay. Maybe I won't stay long enough. I have no clue. Generally, after I've been there for a minute, they're like, "I don't want you to be here." But. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You did keep saying, "I'm going to stop bothering you." I'm like, "Don't go." Yeah. But do you guys feel like it's? I mean, you have an open kitchen there, so you've got like the island that or your countertop is your a physical barrier danny you've got a bar yeah once you guys don't have that and you kind of break down the yeah, fourth wall awkward, and you're man. out touching tables yeah. is it weird for you yeah it's weird for me i mean I, i've i've gotten used to it but there's also like there's also times when i'm like i'm not like personally capable of having a conversation with someone because i'm like trying to be polite but i'm in my head I'm yeah like, of course that's there's same. 27 things happening 100%. in the kitchen behind me yeah. and i'm nervous about all of them same yeah as a diner i'm that's aware right. of that and i'm always thinking like i don't want to hold this guy up because he like 
it's nice that, that someone came. I'm not talking about you or our dinner last week, but like when I, when a chef does come on, I'm talking to them like they have a million things going on. I don't want to, I'm always, I'm always well, looking for, makes, for a way to end the conversation. It makes people feel really, really comfortable and like they're excited that they get this chance and it makes them feel very special. Mm-hmm. And I like recognize that. And like Andres constantly tries to get me to go to tables. Yeah. For any particular reason. And, and, um, uh, I don't mind doing it, but sometimes I'm, it's like, it's like, it's emotionally exhausting to like try and deal with people and, and, and like remembering that they're so happy that they got to talk to me for 10 seconds versus, um, like the weird stuff that I say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's worth it. Yeah. It's probably, it's about as comfortable. You feel as comfortable front of house as if a front of house person had to go in the kitchen and cook. Oh, they all think they can cook. Do they? Yeah, they all. <laughs> that a thing? Oh, yeah. They're like, move over, Come Zach, to the restaurant at 10 yeah. o'clock on a Saturday and watch Andres playing with one pita in the <laughs> oven, being like, I put it in, and then you're like, there's no fire. Like, it's just flat. <laughs> Is that a natural progression, though? Does a front-of-house person show interest in back-of-house, or do those never really – is there never any crossover? Yeah. Rarely. Yeah, usually won't go front to back, but usually often, go back go to back front. To front yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, making a tips. money sign with yeah. my hands. Yeah, right yeah. Now. <laughs> speaking of very aggressive, real, making yeah. it rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There's ones all over the studio right now. Those uh, were there when I got here. So you opened in 2019. Yeah, pandemic comes 2020. You're fresh off uh, James Beard Award 2018, correct? 2017. 2017. A little, a little less fresh. Yeah. <laughs> um, rising chef. Yeah, yeah. Is that? That's but, funny though, you know. Because you'd risen. Well, it's just like, I mean, it's, yeah, he is risen. Uh, the rabbi's son. Um, yeah. Well, it's just funny because it's like, looking back at that, um, like that, that made my entire life happen after it. Like my ability to move to Chicago and open a restaurant and have credibility, at least some credibility with like the media and like my colleagues here, mm-hmm. that certainly helped me it would have been way more difficult like i don't have like endless resources where i can just like open a restaurant and like hope people show up yeah you know like that wasn't i needed yeah, that. It's like a shortcut or validation or... and and i was so incredibly surprised to hear my name called because <laughs> the list of people that were on there um like they are also like regular people but i had like i knew their names like they had worked for big restaurant groups and like you know, we're, if not more talented than I am, et cetera. And it was just kind of like wild that that's how my life, like that's where my life went. Like I was so close. My daughter had been born like seven weeks earlier and I was so close to being like, I have to get out of this. Mm. That like, I was like looking at, um, uh, MBA programs. Oh, wow. Cause it was just like, this is maybe not going to work out. James Beard saved your life. I don't save my life. <laughs> That's what his but shirt says changed, right now. It changed my. You'd be doing corporate. It changed my trajectory off. in yeah. my life entirely. Yeah. You know. That's cool. I don't regret. Like it's not like I uh, feel like I would have regretted not being able to do this if I had stepped away. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, now you can't. Like now you have to give it a shot. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. So it's worked out okay. It yeah. has, yeah. Were you 
freaked out when the pandemic came so close to when you'd open we had had so we had we had almost a year under our belt yeah so april 2019 and then shutdowns like march 15th or whatever yep 2020 we had a stellar first year like we were doing really well financially um it didn't take a ton to open up Galit. like it was sort of piecemeal together a little bit um but we were like doing real with, really well with paying back investors we had like a sizable um like a amount of operating reserves which like andres and i always have that that's like the biggest thing that you should be doing is having like a large amount of operating reserves and if you have too much and you don't want to pay it out invest it in a money market like yeah. have it make money for you right um and so we were sitting on a a good amount we were about to do another payout to the investors like a payback or whatever and we just were like very lucky that we hadn't written checks yet mm. and we had a great january because of restaurant week great february march was looking good for the first couple of weeks like we were on fire we shut down and it was like we're gonna just take care of the staff because like we don't know what's gonna happen and there's no awareness yeah. of of there's no information coming out and so we just like gave everybody a bunch of extra sick pay paid out all their pto that they had accrued if they still had any left um let them take any sick pay that they still had in addition to the ones that we just like gave everybody like a week and then we kept them on health insurance because we uh, offer health health insurance since like june of 2019 and didn't make anybody pay us back or whatever and then things started happening and like like doing that actually benefited us with like the PPP and everything. But we were just like, screw it. Like if we're going down, we might as well like make sure these people are taken care of because we didn't get there without them. It's yeah, kind of where mm-hmm. Andres and I stood. Um, Glee was not designed for takeout. In fact, we never did takeout. Like unless someone was like a regular and like really wanted – something and we like make it happen for them but like we didn't carry to-go boxes there's no place for them in the restaurant like it was not a plan um and we had like ton tens of thousands of dollars of inventory that we needed to like get out the door so we were like selling lamb chops in takeout <laughs> boxes like the first week and like all sorts of crazy stuff and then eventually we kind of pared it down but we never really shut down we the managers all stayed on and we cooked food and we slowly brought people back so like it was a nightmare but i think for me while it was mentally exhausting and i still feel as a restaurant operator that like that will forever hold weight on how i like operate you know like it'll always be emotionally tolling for me it also showed me like just another instance in which uh we were able to really get through some really difficult stuff and just move past it, which is as a restaurant operator, like every day is a struggle. And then at the end of the day, you're like, cool, done. That day's never happening again. How do we improve? This is us going forward. Let's get ready for the next day of challenges. And so it just made us tougher, I think. Yeah. At least it made me tougher mm-hmm. where I'm like, this is nothing. <laughs> like this is the, like we think this is difficult. Like. We were, you know, our landlord was like maybe gonna 
kick us out. <laughs> he wasn't giving us any help, and we were, you know, bleeding money. And yeah, it's brutal. Yeah, I did. I did some takeout meals. I also one of my first meals at a restaurant was at Galit when they shut down Lincoln, and uh, oh, yeah. you guys had like. That, I mean, that alone is like one of, an indication of like how much that sucked. Yeah. How, how did that come <laughs> about though? The Lincoln uh, Park Chamber of Commerce put that together, um, mm. which is really nice. But like, it was like, you know, eight foot wooden metal folding tables, mm-hmm. um, and like we. They like gave us they gave us chairs, so it was really nice. But also like, no one came. I did. Yeah. I was there and I Tim brought my there, dog. Yes. There were a few. Tim, yeah, Tim is no one for <laughs> there, sure. There were a few people, but it yeah, wasn't one like nobody showed like, up. If you, if you were to go down to like Clark Street, and you like you know where like uh, Frontera and stuff, yeah. like yeah. that was nuts. Like yeah. West Loop, that was nuts. But like we were, it was it was good enough, but it wasn't a lot. Yeah, and it was only on weekends. It wasn't every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, obviously, uh, you've recovered well enough to be working on new things. Yes, it seems that's like there's a new concept coming at some point. There is a new concept coming. And I've tried to get details, and Zach has just said, uh, I don't know anything about the menu, but I know it'll be good. That's true. <laughs> that's true. I think it's just donuts. <clears throat> it's just donuts. <laughs> Fried chicken. Um, living <laughs> my nightmare once again. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeast donuts this time. I love a yeast donut. Yeah. Do you want me to? <laughs> you you guys are wasting time. Oh yeah, I was gonna no, go ahead. And no, get no, into sorry. It. All right, get into it. Yeah. Um, not donuts. <laughs> well, I don't actually. If Chef Mary or pastry Mary Eater McClure is our pastry chef for the last five years, if she wants to do donuts, like I'll let her. I don't. Yeah. I don't care. She can do donuts. Um, so we we bought the building next door to Galit, um, which is great because Andres and I. Like would really like to just continually keep our hands on things and be like involved operators and not have to like commute halfway around the city just to mm-hmm. go to each restaurant. Um, Galit is Galit. It's not like the way that we operate now is not going to change. We're going to do this four course menu. We're going to have the wine options. Like the menu is going to be pretty much like seasonally changing Middle Eastern dishes with the same kind of proteins and all that. Like it's not like it works. It works well. <clears throat> it's a format that I really enjoy. Uh, it's kind of like what my dream would be if I were to have a, like a tasting menu restaurant, you know, mm-hmm. it's like exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and so, but that gets a little tiresome and, and it leaves a lot of, it leaves very little space for anyone to do a lot of other things, right? Like we always have the pastrami on the menu um, for many reasons, but like it's probably not going to come off because every time I think about pulling it off, I eat it and I'm like, fuck, I cannot take you this can't off the menu. Of the pastrami. <laughs> it's very good. It's very yeah. good. And it's non-seasonal and like we need that sometimes because like for six months, like what the fuck am I supposed to do? Um, and so it's just going to be – Whatever we want to do, that's not that. It's not necessarily going to be Middle Eastern. I also like grew up in the South. I can cook Southern food pretty well. I worked in an Italian restaurant. Can cook pasta, like, uh, and I can teach people how to cook pasta. And if there's other people that work for us, um, fortunately, like Mary's one of 
five or six in the kitchen that have been with us for like four or five years now. And so they do what we do at Galit. And if they want to mess around with like, uh, one of our sous chefs is like part Filipino. If he wants to do some like stuff like that, or like one of our guys from Mexico city, he wants to do that. Like, I don't really care. Like mm. let's bring in some products from the farmers and we can run specials. Galit does not run specials. It makes no sense for us to run specials. Um, just because like everything's so consistent and I want people to get the same experience, but I want to open up a restaurant that like, um, is a, a neighborhood restaurant, a neighborhood cafe, mm -hmm. a neighborhood like wine bar. We talk a lot about Galit does middle Eastern wines and we would like to, we only have so much space physically and on our list to do wines. <clears throat> and there's things that our reps bring us that we would love to sell and advocate for from these winemakers. And we, it doesn't make sense on our list. Mm -hmm. Like it would be a huge extrapolator. And so to have another place to do those things that we don't do at Galit and like express other elements of like what our group is, is like very important for our internal growth. And so it has less to do with my ego, language, uh, which, which Galit is like, it's literally focused. named after my child. <laughs> uh, and it's also a partnership between Andres and I. So it's like, it it's his hospitality and my food and all that combined together and like telling the stories of all this stuff. And I would just like to not do that. Mm -hmm. It'd be great to have no rules going forward and just like, do what we do, put out really good, simple food. I mean, like, uh, that would be exciting to me, to not have to follow rules. That I've actually, as someone who doesn't like follow rules, I've made a bunch of rules in my own restaurant <laughs> that I now have to follow. So, uh, Yeah, that makes sense. It was very focused, and you proved that you can do that. Now it's time to kind of loosen up and, and have a more eclectic offering. Yeah, and we'll do... That's cool. We'll do, you know, we'll start with dinner, but then like Mary right now, she makes three desserts and they're always great options for everyone. Lots of balance, changing seasonally, exactly the way that I approach the savory menu. She's doing on the dessert menu. She makes pita dough and she makes hollow. And like, that's about the limits of what the menu can do for where her talents are. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to give her the chance to do whatever pastry she wants, Middle Eastern or not, and have that available to the neighborhood to come by and grab. Um, like, there's a second floor to the building, and, like, I don't know what that's going to be. Like, I want it to be events because, like, Galit is at full capacity. We can't do, like, private events there, really. Like, there's mm -hmm. a demand for it. But, like, it can be pop-ups. It can be wine events it can be whatever but lincoln park you guys asked why lincoln park um lincoln park to me feels a lot more like i'm not i'm not like a like a cut from the same cloth restaurant industry person like i don't necessarily always fit in with everyone in the restaurant industry 
um, my lifestyle has like been very different since I was 26. Like we got married when I was 26. I had a kid when we were, when I was 28. So it's like, it's not like, I don't like go out to bars. Like I don't do that sort of stuff. And Lincoln Park having very like family oriented mm-hmm. kind of neighborhood felt like the right place for us. And also that building is exactly what we needed to open Galit. Like single story, uh, two separate hoods, the right square footage, the rental rate was good. Like that's kind of why we ended up there. The demographics are great. And then when you look at that neighborhood, there's nothing. It's true. It's really, it's wild how densely populated it is and how the number of mediocre places that exist there and there's no there's not a lot of exceptional spots in the neighborhood there's a few more trickling in what do you what do you attribute that to is that because it's depaul is that because i think that for years the rental right there was outrageous yeah um the children's hospital this predates my time in chicago but the children's hospital closing ended a lot of businesses that relied on that Oh. specifically like more lunchtime restaurants and it changed like especially on our corner Fullerton, Lincoln and Halstead that changed a lot of the economics and when those high rises got built in the you know on the grounds of the children's hospital that changed a lot too for like what was being in demand there and those rental rates were still outrageous and so all they got to come in was like big groups, not individual operators Mm -hmm. to like take on that $80 a square foot price, which Mm. like we looked at and we were like, get out of here. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Selling chickpea puree, get out of here. (laughs) Um, And so, but there's a lot of individual storefronts on Lincoln um, going north all the way to like Belmont that are empty or like very slow businesses and so there's just not a lot going on Mm -hmm. um and it just seemed like a really great market to be in because otherwise you have to leave you have to go somewhere to find good food Mm -hmm. and now that the pandemic has happened and a lot of people are working from home whereas before there was no demand for lunch business our neighbors who come in regularly are telling us that if we did lunch in any capacity, they would be coming to us once a week. Which they're already coming to us like every other week for dinner. Mm-hmm. So tend to believe them. And so that I think that opportunity exists now that didn't before. And it's really interesting to see that neighborhood change a little bit in terms of like where people are spending money. Yeah. And like the age that's a lot of people are are settling in there for a long term, like Lincoln Park Lakeview who want to be in the city and have kids and a little bit more disposable income and mm. like sort of that middle of the road, you know, Chicago experience. Yeah. Where it's like a little bit more, you know, bougie, I guess. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Tim, you know what? I hate to tell you this, but I think it might be time for the gratuity round. I thought you were going to tell me you're moving to Lincoln Park. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Stock Manufacturing, makers of fine hospitality workwear. You obsess over the details in your space, so why stop at your staff's uniforms? 
Stock has something for every aesthetic. From fine dining to a corner cafe, they've got you covered. Choose from in-stock ready-to-wear options or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. So, wet your whistle and gear up for answering. (laughs) I wetted my whistle. (laughs) What is your death row meal? (laughs) That's so hard. Yeah. That's why we didn't want you to prepare. We know it's not on it. Donuts. Yeah, it's not right. donuts. No donuts. <laughs> um, how, okay, Willie Mae's Scotch House Fried Chicken. Mm, so wow. I named my dog Willie Mae after that restaurant. Not after the baseball player. Not after the baseball player, okay. after the restaurant. That's okay. my death row meal. Okay, great. And that consists of? Uh, a quarter or probably a half of fried chicken, to be honest. If yeah, if you're going row. down, why not? Uh, butter beans. Uh, cornbread muffin, uh, and probably an extra side of red beans and rice. Okay. A good answer. First time it's come up. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite hidden gem restaurant? Ooh, uh, in Chicago? Could be anywhere. Could be anywhere, but. Um, in Chicago, I am a big fan of Nuno Kebab. Mm. All um, right. I was recently turned on to this, and I've had it once a week since. I love Persian food. And it's really good. And they deliver out to my neighborhood, and we will get it and eat that for days. Yeah, Nuno Kebab. And they've got a killer lunch special. It's like 12 bucks, and you're getting a full yeah. platter of delicious food. It has food. come up a lot lately. Yeah. It's great. I'm I'm on it. Yeah. In, in, um, in Philadelphia, where I used to live, be this restaurant called Nam Fong, which is like on 11th and Washington, like just on the northern end of South Philly, and it's this giant, like 200 seat Vietnamese restaurant Whoa. that like you wouldn't know about unless you lived in Philly, and it's like banging. Like everything mm-hmm. on the menu is great. It's a lot of fun to go eat at. Big parties. Just that to sounds awesome. That does sound great. Worth a trip, Danny. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, what's your favorite fast food? Or did you already Super name Dog. It? Super Dog. Okay. I live close by. And I, I think it's like one of the best restaurants in Chicago. Best mascot for sure. What's your order? Uh, generally just Super Dog. Just a hot dog. I told you I like hot dogs. He likes yeah, hot dogs. He does. What's the best hot dog? Vienna? Super Dog. <laughs> what, what, what kind of dogs are they using? They make their own Do they really? Uh, blends, I didn't know their that. Their own casing. It's all customized for them. Did you read uh, Kindlesberger's hot dog piece on the 4th of July? Uh, no. Oh, sorry about that. I'll send it to you. Okay, great. <laughs> I, right. am, I do subscribe to the Tribune. I just... Yeah. I was like, yeah. I don't need someone else to tell me what well, the best hot dog is. I know what it is. Yeah. yeah hot dog lover. I thought you'd want to see where the market's at, but that's uh, neither here nor there. What's your what's your least favorite food? Ooh. Donut? Oh, you ready? Yeah. <laughs> this is going to like upset some people. Okay. I'm, I'm here for that. I despise uni oh that's a a fine answer i we were serving uni at madrona manor where i worked in sonoma and somebody didn't rotate it properly and we were selling bad uni to people for how long like i tasted it and that taste ruined uni for me for life wow like it was like four days old but it was like yeah not like, I don't like subpar uni. We were getting stuff shipped to us, like, specifically for this dish. And, like, 
I used to love it. Like eating the stuff that came out, tasting like every day. And it was like coming off of my station, but it was like somebody else's dish that they were doing. And I like trusted them to like check it and they didn't. And then I uh. I tried it to be like, oh, this is bad. And it, that ruined it. Now yeah. I, I like, I can't. I would imagine. So the, the way uni tastes when it's good probably still has a trace of that bad. Yeah, but I need like, I need like the top tier. Yeah. Like if I went to like Mako or Kyoten, which I would like, you know, or like one of those places, I would be fine with it. Mm-hmm. But like a lot of places that serve uni like are not yeah. spending the kind of money for the. Derek kind of said the same thing. Yeah. Oh. His experience <laughs> with uni was, yeah, bad uni. <laughs> And he, he's just, like, not into it as a result. Yeah. Okay, good answer. Um, what's your favorite cocktail? I like an old-fashioned. Okay. I like, like, those kind of... Rye, bourbon. I like a rye old-fashioned. Um, a lot of rye in New Orleans. Uh, I used to go out a lot more to bars in New Orleans. You don't like hurricanes? <laughs> hurricanes are fine but at my age i don't really want heartburn immediately. um yeah i like i like those i'm also um i'm into more like aperitifs and stuff too a little bit like i like a good negroni or like a vermouth vermouth based something yeah cool yeah. i don't drink that much sazerac I like a good Sazerac. That's all <laughs> that, New Orleans. If you that, correct. Well, no, that's like the perfect blend, isn't it? No, a Saz is very booze heavy. Yeah, but Which between I, an old I fashioned like, and, a, and a Negroni. No? I mean, a Vucaray would be I feel like, kind of the blend. I feel like I'm like, if I'm yeah. getting a cocktail, I want like a Sazerac or an old fashioned, or I want to get. Take it easy. Like, take it easy. Exactly. Like, it's either like a hard in the paint. Or, or a yard long hurricane bench. on Bourbon <laughs> Street. Why not? I was always more of a hand grenade kind of guy. Yeah, that's the other one. Tastes like ecto cooler high sick yeah. with Everclear. Rack your mind. All right, what's one thing that's always in your refrigerator at home? Uh, gotta love the camera going down. <laughs> God damn it! Uh, two in a row. Valentina. Val- the oh, hot the sauce? hot sauce. Yeah, yeah that is. Yeah, a good that's answer. like a staple. Yeah, nice answer. Um, what's your go-to host gift? I'm not saying I would, but if like I invite you I to, go to dinner, s- when what? I go to your house, yeah. Oh, no one invites me anywhere, so I haven't really thought about that. Yeah, I don't have any friends. Well, let's get some. How about the, when someone comes to your house, what would you? What's a great host gift to bring to your house? To bring to my house, um, I don't have any friends. So <laughs> I guess, like, I guess, like, I I'm always like a bottle of wine. So if Rachel's bring. coming over to your house, what do you want her to bring? That's my cousin. Yeah, that is your cousin. Um, and then we're going to ask about my cousin who, who you don't know. <laughs> yeah, you don't, don't know. know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Or what would you bring like a to dessert? Rachel's? I usually tell people just bring dessert. Okay. Like if I have like friends over for like a barbecue in the summer, I'm like, they're like, should we bring anything? I'm like dessert. Cause like if yeah, I don't, don't say the dessert, food. they're going to bring like Walmart potato salad. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Do you think the expectations are high on a chef when they come over to your place? Yeah, I mean, we force cool. Sarah, for cookbook club. We force Saragossa to pick like hard dishes. Yeah, or maybe I do. You don't. No, yeah. I, but I expect that. Like, I, you know, no cop out meals from a chef. But yeah, I guess there is an ad. Do you feel pressure like that when you go places? 
if you um, all right, imagine a world where you have friends. Yeah. <laughs> First, uh, yeah. I like that we're continuing this. <laughs> yeah. On and on. We have some ongoing jokes. Uh, Danny being a Disney adult is one. <laughs> I've heard about this too. Yeah. Which, like, as someone who grew up in Orlando, yeah, that's right. I'm surprised I didn't see you. Yeah, Tim huffing glue in the alleys. <laughs> that's another one. They've never been disproven. <laughs> all right tim's always smelling like glue do i feel pressure to yeah. bring stuff to people's houses for things as a culinary wizard i don't feel pressure i like doing it yeah like i want to do that and and like add value to someone's experience like if i can't do it i just don't do it but also like sometimes i'll bring something that i didn't make that i think is great yeah for someone else yeah um, it's nice to do things that you're good at. I usually, when I go to someone's house for dinner, I'll like, I'll do like a little tennis demonstration you know, <laughs> yeah. for them. Cause that's what yeah. I'm good at. No, he'll draw a caricature of the host. <laughs> draw a caricature. That would be a great thing. You just pull up with an easel. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Moving on here. What's your favorite band or musician? Ooh. Uh, so I grew up in Florida in the early two thousands. So, uh, big against me fan. Hmm. Danny, do you when, know against no, me? I don't. When it, uh, they're like a Gainesville punk. Okay. A little folksy. Uh, the singer uh, came out trans uh, to Rolling Stone in like 2014. Maybe? That's the way to do it. And Laura Jane Grace, and she's yep. got her own thing a little bit too. I believe she lives in Chicago now. Hmm. Um, but grew up listening to them. Love that. If uh, a cook ends up playing it uh, while we're prepping, they immediately um, will get a good employee evaluation and a raise. <laughs> and you will break into song. <laughs> yeah, oh, I do break into song. Perfect. Like if I have to cover the dish pit, like that's my that's my jam. Yeah. Like I play that very loud. Now, here's a question. If you, you know, Saturday night service and you look out in the dining room and Laura Jane Grace is there, do you go touch that table? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Is that meal comped? Um, eh, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I, it depends on how I'm feeling. How many comps do you throw Andres, out a week? if Andres agrees to it. Yeah. Do you guys always? Um, so we don't, we actually, we don't. And, Ever? And, no, we do. We do. Like, when our wives come in, we generally don't sure. charge them. Yeah. Um, That's nice. But kids, like, they pay full freight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My kids, <laughs> oh boy. My kids aren't allowed in the restaurant. They behave too poorly to yeah, be allowed. I would say the same for me. Um, uh, we, our kind of thing is like, hospitality isn't necessarily about giving away free shit. I think yeah. a lot of people fall back on that as like an easy way out. And... Andres and the team are skillful enough at like doing things that are not that. Yeah. Um, I feel like we'll throw some free food at people, uh, but I don't love getting crushed at a restaurant. Yeah. I'm similar. I actually was thinking about this yesterday. It's like, yeah, the few touches are nice when they happen. Um, but yeah, a full comp is awkward. Um, and then getting crushed is also awkward when you feel like you're gonna have a lot of waste. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, I think. But the acknowledgement is, sure, uh, I have an ego like like anyone else. And uh, <laughs> no. it is nice. Uh, but also, if nothing happens, I'm, I, I'm totally well, cool Because we're well. Because we own 
restaurants and yeah. bars and we're like if i'm coming to your restaurant it's to patronize your business yeah to support like you. i'm here to give you exactly. my money like that's totally okay you don't need to feel like we need to do some weird exchange like um like you know when i when um like this is a good example like jenner tomaska and his wife katrina when they were not at next and they were like figuring out the next step they came in for dinner and like andres and i didn't charge them because we were like where's the income like this was 2019 so it wasn't like the four course menu but like we didn't charge them and i just wrote like a a note on their bill that was like no bill suckers yeah and like he kept it and then when i came in to eat at esme the first time uh he that's what they dropped as the bill and i was like i was like furious at first i was i was like very heartfelt but i was also furious because i was like i was like this is like four times what i (laughs) come to you (laughs) and so the the idea of like equitable trade yeah between us and like i don't get out that much so like i don't want people to feel like when i do show up that they should like treat me any differently than a regular customer for sure. You know, it's yeah. a, it's a weird thing. It is happens. super weird. It's a weird part of our of our biz. As a non-restaurant <clears throat> owner, yes, it's nice to get recognition at a restaurant. Maybe a free dish is nice, but yeah, you don't want a comp meal. That's uncomfortable, especially cuz I almost never carry cash and it's very hard to tip that way cuz you want to leave a very nice tip if something's comp for you. The other thing too is like if you if you do get crushed with a bunch of free dishes, it, it is wasteful. And then also the next time I go to that restaurant, I'm like, oh, no, are they going to send all this stuff out? And then I'm like, I don't know how I order now. Like, should I be, you know, it's just, it's. Yeah, that's the actually that I the, the funny about. thing you bring up is the how it influences your next visit. Because sometimes mm-hmm. you put a cushion in what you order because you're like totally. thinking that Not like, just you're going to send stuff out. And then if they if they do, you're like, oh, cool. And if they don't, you're like, oh, I guess I got to order some more food. Not just that, but at, at other restaurants, like. I think a lot of people expect it to be the norm. Yeah. And so if you go to a restaurant and you're just like a restaurant employee and you know people or the manager and they send you a bunch of free stuff, then you go to another restaurant and you don't know anyone there and you just expect them to like know that you're the CDC of like the steakhouse or whatever that everyone knows about. Um, and you don't get free stuff because there's no relationship there your experience may immediately be colored by that. Yeah. And that's an unfair way to evaluate for sure your mm-hmm. experience. And and I think that that is like ingrained behavior in a lot of, I see it like in Chicago younger. in a lot of people that worked for some of these larger restaurant groups that operated in that practice where they're like, that's the only way to show people that I care about them. And I'm like, but what about someone that you don't know about that's here? Like, how are we giving them an exceptional yeah, experience for sure. outside of what we normally do? And I think that that is, like, a disease in yeah, our industry a little great. bit. Yep. So. I also yeah. never hit people up for reservations. I feel like. And, and then. See, and that that is dumb, right? Because you is it? are, you are, like, because of what you do, you're ingrained in this business, even, like, as, like, a, you know, an outside layer of it. And, like, what we want to do is to have you come in. So if you ask us and we can't do it, we'll let you know. But if you, like, never ask us, like, 
you know, and you're waiting and waiting, like, how are we supposed to help you? Yeah, I don't know. It's, and it's always awkward when people are like, oh, Tim Tim knows all these chefs and restaurants. They're like, can you get me a reservation? And I'm like, I don't even do well, that for myself. For you. Yeah, but for I'm you, like, I don't even do it for myself. Of course people. I'm not going to do it for yeah, you. Yeah, I think the res thing is just depending on what what's happening. The one exception is Loyalist. I always hit them up because we live upstairs and it's like so many times we're like, well, let's just go downstairs and get a burger. And so I'll text the GM. Well, yeah, because, like, because they also table? are like, they want your business regularly. You live yeah. above there. They want to maintain their relationship. Yeah. But I think that... Um, for for that sort of thing is like if, if someone doesn't like you they're going to continually not be able to get you that reservation <laughs> so like yeah. until you until you know for sure that you're not well liked generally mm. like just ask and like if we're annoyed by it then like we'll try and do it anyway like people that are really truly into this for hospitality are going to really try and find to make it work and squeeze you in, like even at mm. like a galit or whatever. Um, like half of Andres's day is usually filled up with people trying to squeeze in a reservation somewhere, and him mm. trying to like communicate them on with them on how he can get them in at maybe not seven, but yeah. six fifteen. So like, just ask him. All right, I'll stop being so. You yeah, have my ask. number, man. Have I ever asked you to get into one of your restaurants, Danny? As a close friend? Uh, no, no, you don't do that stuff. I don't even like to tell you I'm there. Yeah, that's true. Until I leave. It's I funny. One of my partners out. says in a, in a meeting sometimes with other <laughs> managers, he's like, he's like, a friend will text when they're they're at a place expecting maybe to like have something sent out or something come. But he's like, one of our good friends, one of our closest friends, they're not texting us until after they've already left. That's and what I, I do. I thought about that. And then, I, and then I like, it's always like, hey, I think you could improve this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There's like really? an interesting People distinction. People text you after they've been. They don't no, which is nice. Like, yeah, yeah I do. I and it was yeah. great because that way, like, they're not looking for anything, mm-hmm. you know. But with someone who's like still there, obviously, you're going to like yeah. reach out to the managers, like send something out, comp around, whatever. Um, yeah, I, I honestly am fine either way. Now, I know we're running long, but I have another question for you guys. <laughs> so is it like when I know a friend is at a restaurant where I that I like or I know that restaurant or maybe I know someone who works there, is it a gigantic pain? And I want to like treat them to a, a dish. What's the best way to go about it? Can I just call the restaurant and be like, hey, I'd like to send dessert and a, and a drink to this table. And then can you just take my it credit card over on, the phone? It depends on what the restaurant's like tech is. Like yeah. with with like resi you can do prepays where you can like prepay for something as a credit through their resi profile and we can like apply it to a bill mm-hmm. and like i have uh like one of my good friends um he like we cooked at Zahav together he was at my wedding he lives in maine but he works for a company that's based in chicago and so like if someone from work or something is coming in He'll be like, send me a prepay so I can buy them like a round of cocktails because okay. they're there celebrating their engagement or something. It's like that's not difficult to do anymore because like everybody has thought about those things. And if they're using modern technology, it's relatively easy. Okay, that's good it. to know because I always assume like, I'm like, yeah, it's a nice thing to do, but am I being a pain in the ass for the restaurant? And are they just like rolling their eyes like, oh, this fucking No, because money's money, right? Yeah, okay. Like, I mean, it's a little awkward 
at the end when you're trying to explain to someone. Yeah, like Tim like, took care of your Tim dessert. T- yeah, it's always and anonymous. they're like, "Who's Tim?" I never, I never yeah, give my name. Who's Tim Tierney? <laughs> never heard of this fellow. And yeah. then you're like, "Oh, we did it for the wrong table." Shit. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm buying drinks for every table. Uh, all right, that was a really long answer to your favorite band or musician. Um, <laughs> so now, what's your favorite movie? Uh, I, I'm gonna. I'm guessing comedy genre. <laughs> this is annoying. Comedy genre. <laughs> comedy genre. This is my guess. I'm not saying you have to stick within that genre. I guess, like of all time, comedy genre. Uh, I mean, Blazing Saddles. Like, all right. The like that's one. the. You know. It's not current. Yeah. But like, no, it's not. It still makes me laugh. Mm-hmm. And I don't like, I'm not like a laugh out loud in a movie kind of person necessarily. It's a good answer. Uh, it's, a, it's a safe answer. <laughs> it's very safe. <laughs> uh, all right. And then your last question. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Uh, I would be uh, living in Sonoma, uh, farming, and making wine. And um, same wife, different wife. Same wife. <laughs> she's great. She's pretty <laughs> rad. Question, I mean, <laughs> uh, like uh, it's the retirement plan. Yeah, is like the kids are out of the house, and we're like gonna go and deal with no human beings at all. You're gonna and just have like hands. a bunch of dogs, like so many dogs. Yeah, that's a pretty ideal. Yeah, retirement that's kind of that's my. How many dogs do you have now? I have one. Thirty. But our <laughs> house isn't that big. <laughs> all right cool yeah and it's the willie mays well actually willie may passed away oh god so i got an i got another one that looks just like him uh it was a couple years ago the wounds are healed yeah his name is coach eric taylor godzilla (laughs) from friday night is that friday Night Lights? Lights. also my uh so good my six-year-old margalit loves godzilla Has <laughs> seen all the all the Godzillas and oh the Pacific gosh. Rims and yeah. the Me- the Meg. She watched the Meg. Oh yeah, she loves that shit. Oversized monsters from the deep. Yeah, prehistoric. <laughs> so I I had to like negotiate with her. Yeah, but he's ter- he's a terrible dog. All right, what breed? German short hair. German short haired pointer. Yeah, I have a German wire haired pointer. Oh cool. They're high energy. They're high energy. We Hunt, should get them to hang out. Hunting dogs. No, my dog doesn't like other dogs. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really... <laughs> if, well, especially dogs that live in our building. He fucking hates them. It's bad in the hallways. Yeah, so it's sorry. Good to end on, for Maybe sure. they could be pen pals or something. Yeah. <laughs> we'll send them pictures of each other. <laughs> All right. Well, Zach, thanks for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. I'll start listening now. You yeah. should. Yeah. Start yeah. with your episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that concludes our conversation with Zach Angle of Galit. Thanks for tuning in. We'll check you next week. And as always, don't forget to check out our Instagram at Joiners Pod. We've got reels, cocktail recipes, throwback photos. So Can real... someone explain to us what, why certain reels explode? Yeah, and we've no some idea. very good ones don't. No, <laughs> there's idea. no rhyme it's or so reason random. to it. But if someone wants to chime in and let us know how that works, any Instagram employees out there? Yeah, give us that up. insight. Um, all right, yeah. And this episode was produced by Matt Haddock, real work by Joe Guzzo, and music by Captain Cuts. You really you messed with the order. I did. Check you next week, baby. Bye.